Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced and edited by The Milk Mob and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? I'm great. How are you doing? Good, good. So today you're going to talk about jaundice, the new Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine protocol on jaundice. It's actually not new, right? It's an update? Right. It's an updated um, clinical protocol number 22, guidelines for management of jaundice in the breastfeeding infant 35 weeks or more of gestation, um, which was revised in June of 2017. Um, And this was by Valerie Flayerman and Jeffrey Maisels and the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Um, And the purpose of this protocol is threefold. It's to provide guidance in determining whether and how breastfeeding may or may not be contributing to infant jaundice. Um, Two, to review evidence-based strategies for reducing jaundice in the breastfeeding infant. And three, to provide protocols for supporting breastfeeding while infants are being evaluated and treated for jaundice. So um, I think that the um, treatment of infants and jaundice is something that most people are familiar with. And so I'm going to sort of do a a summary of part of this, and then we can talk a little bit about our practice. Um, I think that it's a really great short review in here of hyperbilirubinemia of the newborn. It reminds us that virtually all newborns have some elevation of their total serum bilirubin, um, with greater than 90% of infants, um, sorry, Grading, greater than 90% of which is unconjugated bilirubin. And relative to adult values, which I'm going to do both the international and the U.S. units. So um, normally adults have less than 17 millimoles per liter or less than one milligram per deciliter. Just to remind everybody, as heme is broken down, um, it produces biliverdin. And then this is reduced by biliverdin reductase to unconjugated bilirubin. The unconjugated bilirubin um, is then conjugated in the liver and excreted through the gut. And newborns have higher levels of total serum bilirubin because of a combination of three things. They have increased production of bilirubin because they have more postnatal heme degradation. They have decreased uptake and conjugation of bilirubin due to immature hepatic development, and they have increased intestinal reabsorption of bilirubin. Because of that, in the first week of life, more than 80% of newborns appear jaundiced, although there's some differences in um, racial and sociocultural populations. So we are going to focus on breastfeeding with jaundice, of course, in this protocol. And um, although there were some early studies that did not report differences between breastfed and formula-fed infants. Subsequent studies with larger sample sizes demonstrated a strong association between hyperbilirubinemia and breastfeeding compared with formula feeding, especially with exclusive breastfeeding. 
And I did not know, but found it really interesting that um, even though there is that difference, a study between the relationship of stool production and jaundice in healthy breastfed and formula-fed newborns found that, um, not surprisingly, formula-fed babies have less stool production, um, but there isn't a difference in the serum bile concentrations um, that is associated with their amount of stool production in the first four days. So say that. So you're saying that um, that formula-fed babies don't poop as much, but, but that doesn't the the amount of stool is not associated with the level of bilirubin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because you always think, oh, lots of poop. You're not going to be the jaundiced. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so there's probably a couple of things going on there. We know that breastfed babies, you know, breasts, I always say to parents, breast milk is a laxative. Um, this getting intake is going to help your baby start to poop. Um, but there is more enterohepatic uptake um, with breastfeeding. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, based on all of this evidence, there are two broad category, categories Um of the association between breastfeeding and jaundice that have been described. Jaundice that occurs um, with a so in the first week in association with ongoing weight loss has been termed breastfeeding jaundice or breastfeeding associated jaundice or breast non-feeding jaundice or starvation jaundice. And so those are all different ways to say we're supposedly breastfeeding, but the baby isn't getting very much. And I'm going to just interject in that because I took my family medicine boards again this year, and they definitely use those terms like breast. Um, they they use the term breast milk jaundice or breast. Fe- they they had a question right. about breast Yeah, those are the typically jaundice. used yeah. terms, and I yep. no, no, find but, them super confusing. Right, but I was saying that in family medicine, they they the question was this baby has breastfeeding jaundice. And they didn't say breast milk jaundice, and I think that would have been confusing, as you're saying. But the interesting thing is that they're recognizing the difference, which shocked me. Well, so I always teach my students, and this may or may not work for other people, but the way I remember what is breastfeeding jaundice versus breast milk jaundice, because we're going to get to breast milk jaundice in a second, is I say, what's the opposite of feeding? Starving. (laughs) What's the opposite of breast milk? formula. I mean, (laughs) sort of, not really. But so really, there's a big difference between babies who are poorly feeding and babies who are having increased enterohepatic um, circulation because of the qualities of breast milk, which we're going to get into in a second. So um, it basically says that in this protocol, they're going to refer to this as suboptimal intake jaundice of the newborn because it's always associated with um, poor enteral intake. Um, And although the protocol focuses on breastfeeding and jaundice, it's important to note that early onset of jaundice within the first 24 to 48 hours of birth is unlikely to be related to breastfeeding or the lack of breastfeeding and should be assessed and treated promptly without interruption of breastfeeding. So, you know, I always think if a baby is jaundiced within the first 24 hours of life, there's more likely to be hemolysis. There's more likely to be some other problem not related to feeding. And thus, I'm not going to interrupt breastfeeding when I'm evaluating the, the cause of that and I'm treating the baby if they need to start early phototherapy. Yeah, that's a really good pearl, I think, for 
for doctors in training too. Yeah. Um, so when they go further into this suboptimal intake jaundice of the newborn, they remind us that during the first days after birth, it's normal for colostrum volumes to be small, appropriate for the infant's stomach size and their physiological needs. In the first 24 hours of life, exclusively breastfed infants may receive no more than 1 to 5 milliliters of milk per feeding or 5 to 37 milliliters in total. And there are some references for that. And I thought that was worth pausing on because, you know, we've all seen the little belly balls. And I talk to parents a lot about stomach size. And, you know, a lot of the, the guidance says, in the first day, the baby's stomach is five to seven milliliters. Um, but I certainly have been with a lot of moms where we've tried to hand express into a five milliliter spoon. And I think to myself, there's no way this baby is getting five milliliters per feeding. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw this, you know, one to five, I was like, yeah, that, that jives more with what I've seen in my experience. Yeah. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. And a lot of times you, you just don't hear gulping or big, you know, many swallows when they're first starting to nurse. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that that is in, on the one hand, reassuring to me when I see it, because I'm like, yes, we've survived for millions of years. And this is really, you know, in the realm of normal. Of course, our modern birth practices are probably exacerbating the problem. But yeah, yeah, that was, that was a good reminder. Right. Um, in normal adults, if we don't eat for 24 hours, if we don't have any caloric intake, um, even with good hydration, we will have small increases in our unconjugated um, bilirubin. And that is because of this effect of the increase in enterohepatic circulation of bilirubin. Similarly, in newborns, breastfeeding difficulties or delay in the onset of um, secretory activation, also called lactogenesis 2, may result in lower caloric intake, which can lead to an increase in enterohepatic circulation. And this can lead to more hyperbilirubinemia. In addition, the mechanism for the increase in um, bilirubin is likely to include other developmental limitations in bilirubin metabolism and transport in the newborn. So, you know, they have less mature livers, and um, this is even more the case if they are of earlier gestational age and are more immature. Because formula-fed infants are given large volumes, much greater than what is typically physiologically normal, um, it's uncommon for them to become jaundiced. And the authors stated, oral intake equalizes for the groups once maternal secretory activation occurs around two to five days of age. And while I think that can happen it doesn't always happen there's a lot of moms that when their milk comes in transfer is not effective and so those are the ones that I think I'm always really watching out for yeah definitely so then the authors go in go on to talk about breast milk jaundice or prolonged jaundice associated with breast milk feeding Um, and they mention that although um, hyperbilirubinemia that extends into the second and third week can be due to breast milk. It can also last for up to two to three months. And they say at 28 days, one-fifth of predominantly breastfed infants are still visibly jaundiced, and 34% had a bilirubin over five. 
Um, and so that can be normal. And there is not evidence that that um, causes any neurological problems. Right. Yeah. It's really common to see in my lactation clinic, you know, the babies who are four and five weeks old, they still have a tinge of yellow pretty commonly. Yeah. But they do point out that prolonged jaundice beyond the second and third week in healthy breastfeeding newborns um, is called breast milk jaundice to distinguish it from suboptimal intake jaundice, which should resolve by one to two weeks. Mm -hmm. There's a little graph in the um, protocol that distinguishes the characteristics from poor intake and breast milk jaundice and um, you know it goes into the timing I think a really useful point is the weight so in poor intake there's continuing weight loss for breast milk jaundice babies should be gaining 30 grams a day or more Um, there's a big difference in the stool so babies who aren't eating well will still have dark stool less than five a day instead of those eight or more yellow stools And um, also the point that poor intake is um, much more common in babies who are less than 38 weeks and is rarely seen in babies that are 40 or more weeks gestation. Also, those babies tend to be either really fussy between feedings or sleepy and hard to wake up for feedings. Right, yeah. So then this is the part that I was waiting for when this revision came out because for years, and this is still in here, I've read, the, pre- the precise mechanism of breast milk jaundice remains unknown, despite much investigation. And that's partly because there are multiple factors that contribute to whether bilirubin is eliminated with fecal fat or reabsorbed into the bloodstream. And there is a long list of different factors and cytokines, and I'm not going to read off the whole thing. Um, but one of them is variations in the UGT1A1 gene. Um, and I think that it is so interesting that they, you know, don't know exactly which genetic factors and which breast milk factors play in. And one of the things in here that I had not heard before is that the lower abundance of certain bifidobacterium may mm. also be contributing. And that's so interesting based on the fact that we know more now about the microbiome and how feeding breast milk versus formula changes the baby's microbiome. Well, you know, that's so interesting because I remember Larry Gartner, you know, who was very involved in Billy Rubin research and is a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, years ago said that there was evidence that babies who were born via cesarean section where moms had not gone through labor first had more jaundice. And I wonder if if that means that if mom was already going through labor and maybe the, the membranes were ruptured and there was some early colonization of the gut, just the fact that she wasn't labor, um, you know, so that the vaginal secretions were already in contact with the baby to some extent, that that established that microbiome earlier as opposed to the baby who just has an elective C-section. He's told me that hmm. several times for years, and I wonder if, if that is that link. It's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. It is, because, you know, I knew that moms who had C-sections, they're more at risk for delayed lactogenesis too, and that, of course, can contribute to breastfeeding jaundice. But I didn't know that association between whether or not they had labored before the C-section. Yeah, and I don't know if that's ever been, you know, how the last Rigorously time that's ever studied. Yeah, I don't know, but that was something that he, you know, that that just sticks in my mind that he said to me. Yeah. So sorry, so, Larry, if you're listening, if I got that wrong, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure he said that. Yeah. 
We can have him call in for the next podcast and have another voice. So um, they point out that over time, the jaundice and elevated bilirubin decline at varying rates to normal adult values, even while breastfeeding continues. However, and this is my next pearl, whenever jaundice in a breastfeeding newborn is prolonged beyond the third week, it's really important to rule out cholestasis by measuring the direct or unconjugated bilirubin level to evaluate for other causes of prolonged, um, oh, and to evaluate for other causes of prolonged indirect hyperbilirubinemia, such as congenital hypothyroidism. And you know the other thing is G6PD deficiency because um, the you know the um, mo- most of the states in this country don't screen for that in their newborn screening, mm-hmm. and so and something like that can happen in populations like you know Asian and Mediterranean populations. Uh, yeah, it's actually a lot more common than I originally thought it yeah, was. Yeah, it is more common. And and if a mother takes like nitrofurantoin or certain medications, then suddenly there may be this increase in jaundice. Oh, yeah. There was yeah. A, one of the blurbs from like the new articles in breastfeeding medicine in the last week or two was on this case report of moms who had drunk tonic water. Wait, was that, that your No, that was my week? clinical question of the week. I'm so <laughs> glad you read my clinical question of the week. <laughs> it was. Yes, it was, it was about the tonic water. Yes, and, and quinine and tonic water. And I, really I love tonic water. So when I saw about something about tonic water, I thought, I'm going to read that. <laughs> oh, funny. Was, okay, so yeah. I'm not always good at remembering where I heard things, but they're all up there somewhere. Yes. Um, for her, And for indirect hyperbilirubinemia that extends beyond two months... We're thinking about those other undiagnosed types of hemolysis like um, Gbert or Gilbert syndrome, depending on how people pronounce it, and um, Kriegler-Najjar, which is really rare. It's one in a million births, but should be considered. Um, When it comes to the interaction between these two different types of jaundice, breast milk jaundice and suboptimal intake jaundice, Um, there is strong evidence that increased bilirubin in the first few days is highly correlated with suboptimal intake. Although, you know, I think the first few days, excluding the first 24 hours. Um, And serum bilirubin concentrations are highly associated with greater weight loss in breastfed infants. And so, you know, babies that are all babies are not super effective at sucking in the first day relative to later. Um, so ineffective suckling and poor caloric intake in the first few days increases um, bilirubin levels. And then as they improve, hopefully they move past that. Mm-hmm. Um, then they talked a little bit about carnicterus and bilirubin encephalopathy. The most recent studies in high-resource countries suggest that the absent, in the absence of significant comorbidities such as sepsis or RH hemolytic disease, carnicterus or chronic bilirubin encephalopathy occurs in 1 in 200,000 live births and only when total serum bilirubin levels exceed 600 millimoles per liter or 35 milligrams mm. per deciliter. And I think this is such an important point to make. So, so, so often when I am interacting with um, families and residents, particularly if I have come behind someone else who has been talking to a family about the baby was borderline bilirubin at 24 hours, and so we're going to follow it, 
the families have only been told, oh, your baby's bilirubin was nine and the cutoff was 10. But they weren't given the information of, and, and then they'll say, and if it's too high, the baby could get brain damage. But they don't say, but that doesn't occur until levels over 30. You know, people just yeah. feel like they're right by this line that's dangerous. And so I think it's really, really helpful, at least for residents, because I didn't learn this until after I finished residency, to think about for a healthy term baby, we don't see that sort of long-term effect until higher numbers, yeah. over 30. Because right, I think right. a lot of them don't put that together when they're saying, oh my gosh, they came to the ER and it was 21. And I'm like, okay, take yeah. a breath. Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, well, I think I think one one concern is that I, I think there still are some hospitals in our country and probably outside the country where those 35 to 37 weekers are treated as term, um, where there's not a separate protocol, especially those who are big. And I, from what I recall, you know, certainly that, that population has a higher risk of jaundice, right? Because their livers oh, are yeah. even more immature. We're going to get there. Yeah. And so um, I think just making sure that people understand that 35 to 37 weeks, just because they're on the floor, doesn't mean that they're healthy term and that, you know, because they go home at the same time and they're sometimes treated the same and they're different. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. And those are the ones then, who have the higher risk, right? Of Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, this does say in lower resource countries, bilirubin encephalopathy and comorbidities are much more common so that carnicterus can and does occur more frequently and at lower bilirubin levels, which I think the lower bilirubin levels are tied to the comorbidities. Yeah. So if they have lower protein binding, like less protein, um, or they're mm-hmm. anemic, uh, right, then they can actually, then the bilirubin can get into the brain more easily. And mm-hmm. if they're younger, they have weaker blood-brain barriers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. part of the reason that those more preterm babies are at higher risk for connectoris. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are uh, uh, so now we go into the evidence-based strategies for preventing or reducing jaundice in breastfeeding infants, and. I'm not going to go through every single one of these because there are a couple other protocols that are referenced, and a lot of these sort of highlight the best practices for early initiation of breastfeeding and supporting breastfeeding with, you know, frequent feedings and hand expression and um, a lot of those things that hopefully our listeners are very familiar with. Um, They do mention that mothers and some mothers and infants are at higher risk and the maternal factors like we talked about earlier c-section maternal um, body mass index over 27 diabetes rh sensitization and a past family history also um, first-time mothers are at risk for delayed secretary activation and then um, with the infant risk factors with the exception of infants with um, pathologic conditions like RH and ABO hemolytic disease and G6PD deficiency, the single most important clinical risk factor is decreasing gestational age. So as you said, for every week gestation below 40 weeks, the odds of developing um, a elevated bilirubin increased by a factor of 1.7. Mm, interesting. Mm. Also, significant bruising or cephalohematoma can increase the risk due to increased breakdown of heme. 
and East Asian newborns have a higher risk of jaundice, perhaps related to their ethnic or genetic background. Mm-hmm. Um, I did also want to touch on this one note that was in here. It was about hand expression or pumping of colostrum can provide extra milk um, for some infants at risk for suboptimal intake and assist in establishing a good supply. And it noted, although pumping is commonly used, it's noteworthy that hand expression may be better tolerated by mothers in the immediate postpartum period. And randomized controlled trials have shown the initiation of pumping may reduce milk transfer and eventual breastfeeding duration for some populations of infants. I think hopefully we're going to get more and more hand expression into hospitals over time. One of the things I'm constantly trying to do is to get the nurses to teach hand expression rather than pulling out the pump and handing it to the mom with no direction whatsoever. Yeah. I think, I think there's a comment. I think, well, in our next podcast that we're going to record, uh, we're going to talk about the importance of uh, negative pressure. And so the Mm. combination of pumping and hand expression might also be, is probably the best. And we'll, so we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, For, for when babies are not nursing. Um, so one yeah. question I have about this protocol is uh, I remember when, I think it was 2010, when AAP put out their last uh, policy or protocol about Correct. lactation. And that's when they said everyone should be monitored. Like clearly everyone needs to have some sort yep. of monitoring in place. And so that's when our hospital went from clinical judgment to definitely measuring at that 24-hour period and then and then rating them. That's on... exactly where I'm going next. Oh, you are? I'm sorry. I thought you were done. Yes. Okay, great. Okay. Almost. Very okay. close. <laughs> so um, they touch on the ABM supplemental or clinical protocol and supplementing for those babies that need it. They talk a lot about that. Then they say, you know, most infants discharged should be seen by a healthcare provider within two days from the birth hospitalization. Um, and then they go into... Um, protocols for monitoring. And so there are consensus-based guidelines for the management of hyperbilirubinemia, including monitoring and thresholds for treatment in United States, Canada, Norway, the UK, and some 14 other countries. And several recommend measurement of the transcutaneous bili or serum bilirubin in every infant before discharge from the hospitalization. Um, the United Kingdom is an exception to that. They don't specifically recommend it. Um, but universal transcutaneous measurement is also standard practice in Japan. And most U.S. hospitals are starting to go that way. I don't know that they all have it yet. Um, but combining that measurement with the infant's gestational age and plotting it on the appropriate graph provide a prediction of the risk of hyperbilirubinemia. When those levels rise above thresholds of stated guidelines, despite adequate um, lactation support, phototherapy is recommended as the most effective treatment. And other um, therapeutic options include feeding with expressed breast milk, supplemental donor milk, temporary supplementation with infant formula, or very rarely temporary interruption of breastfeeding and replacement with infant formula. Um, It also goes on to say that those feeding um, treatment options are especially useful in settings where it's more difficult to get phototherapy started, and it, those things should be done ideally before babies are 
up in the phototherapy treatment range. So if we're watching them closely, we see that they're one of the babies that is not, um, they're, they're closer to the phototherapy treatment range than we would like, then we can intervene early with those right. treatments. Right. Um, it says phototherapy can be done in the hospital or at home, um, but low-risk babies are the ones that should be treated at home and they should have their serum belly levels monitored. In the hospital, therapy is best done in the mother's room to minimize separation of the infant and interruption of phototherapy for durations of up to 30 minutes or longer to permit breastfeeding without their eye patches um, does not alter the effectiveness of the treatment. Great. Um, And then I think the other um, two things for treatment are Supplementing with water or glucose is contraindicated because it does not in- reduce serum bilirubin. It can interfere with breastfeeding and could cause hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. And um, supplementation of breastfeeding should preferentially be undertaken with a cup, spoon, syringe, or supplemental feeding system if the baby's latching, immediately following each breastfeeding. And there's no evidence that any of these methods are unsafe or that one is particularly better than the other. Good for them for saying that. Yeah. yeah. I thought they did a really good job with this protocol. Um, the uh, only last few things in here are that um, there, and I heard this at an ABM meeting a few years ago, there's something, although they're not exactly sure what it is, that's in infant formula that, inhibits the intestinal reabsorption of bilirubin. And so I remember at the time the speaker was like, you know, someday instead of supplementing with formula, we may basically have a medicine that is derived from casein that we may give babies to help reduce their bilirubin. Um, But that is still in the area of future research needed because we don't, we're not quite there yet. Um, if formula supplementation is given, small volume feedings after breastfeeding are preferred to intermittent large volume feedings um, unless a baby has not received sufficient milk and is um, significantly dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, temporary interruption of breastfeeding is rarely needed, but could be considered for specific clinical scenarios in which rapid reduction of um, serum bilirubin is urgently needed. And uh, I think that is something that over the years I've been seeing fewer people recommend, um, thankfully, because it used to be in the old days I would see lots of people for babies that really weren't that close to being near treatment levels at home, um, pediatricians telling parents, oh, just give 24 hours of formula and then go back to breastfeeding. And that's just not, it's not easy to accomplish. And right. it's not necessary. It interferes. Absolutely. It, de- it destroys it. And, you know, it's just not, it's absolutely not necessary. I agree. And I think that, at least in our population, the patients don't tolerate that kind of advice. They get right on the phone and call LA2 League and say, is this right? Like, why do I need to do this? Um, yeah, and, and those yeah. people that do not have that backup and support, they're often really guilt-ridden. And, you know, they think, oh, you know, I've hurt my baby. And that's horrible. It's horrible to suggest to a mother when she's trying her hardest to take you know, the best care of her baby that she can, something that she is doing is making the baby sick. Exactly. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, good. Well, that sounds like a, a very um, uh, productive protocol. Yeah, I, uh, I enjoyed it. Great. I'll talk to you next time. Sounds good. Take care. Bye. Bye. For questions regarding this podcast, contact us through themilkmob.org. We have other educational projects going on there, such as the Clinical Question of the Week and our Outpatient Breastfeeding Champion programs. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Facebook page, where you can also share comments and questions with your co-listeners. To learn more about the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, please visit www.bfmed.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks.